Hey guys, this is Kirsten Karen. Welcome to another episode of Why Do I Feel So Cheesy Right Now? <laughs> oh God. Welcome to another episode of Her Name Podcast. <laughs> Fuck. This is literally like the 17th time I've tried to record this introduction and I don't know what is wrong with me today. I can't fucking talk already. <sighs> Christ. <laughs> I would I would re-record it, but this is just this I it just I feel like it gets worse every single time that I do. So we're going with it. Hello. Hello, hi. How's everybody doing? How is everyone handling everything right now? It is uh, tail end of July 2020. What a fucking year, huh? Like, this has been just... And it's only July. I feel like I've lived 10 years in the last, like, three months. Okay. My dogs are out of control tonight, and so you're going to hear them probably running around. I'm sorry, I have two dogs. One is old, like me, and he's asleep on the chair, which is probably where I should be right now. Uh, the other dog is playing with his toys and just hyper, super hyper. Whew, okay. You know, I, I don't know where this levity is coming from because today's episode is... Uh, it's a gut wrencher, guys. It's it's rough. It's it's a it's hard. It's a tough one. So I don't know why. Maybe that's why. I'm actually. I think. I think what it is. Um. I think I'm actually a little bit nervous, and and so I'm stalling, and I'm like laughing a lot. When I go on roller coasters, I giggle. Like I scream and I swear and then I laugh. Like I giggle. That's my fear reaction is is part of it's like laughing. Uh, so I think maybe that's what's happening now. But before we get too far into this uh, adult content warning <laughs> for like the last two minutes, I've been swearing my head off. Uh, yeah, adult language. If you don't like that shit, then probably this is not the place where you want to be. And probably you and I should not be friends. Uh, just because I... I, I I'm at that age now. I'm I'm in I almost said I'm in my mid 40s. I'm in my early 40s. I don't know why I'm trying to like add years to years that already feel too many. <laughs> uh, but I I consider myself to be like at peak Karen middle age. And that's Karen like Karen, let me speak to your manager, Karen, not like my last name, Karen, which is actually my ex-husband's last name. I just didn't want to change it. That's a whole thing. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I just don't care. I don't give a fuck. I'm not going to I'm not going to watch my language. I'm not going to do that. I'm just not going to do that. I mean, my own little kids. Sure. Are there four year olds listening to this podcast? I sure fucking hope not. That would be wild. And highly inappropriate. <laughs> the other thing that we need to talk about before we get too far into it, before we get into it at all, this is my huge, mega, 
content and trigger warning. Today we will be discussing suicide. My other cases that I've covered, you know, missing person, murder, wartime murder, this one's a little different. Uh, This is not unsolved. This is not a murder. (laughs) This is a death by suicide. And I have a lot to say about that topic, both as an almost psychologist (laughs) and as someone who, uh, you know, struggles with depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation. So I got a lot to say. There's a lot I'm going to say. I don't know why I just like slipped into like this weird little almost New England accent for a second, but uh, this is a topic that I think is is very much misunderstood. It's something that we, in general, we don't handle mental health very well in the United States, which is where I live. Unfortunately. <laughs> you guys are a fucking mess right now. Somebody save us. Canada? England? Anyone? <laughs> Things are bonkers right now. Um... But no, we just, we, we don't. And, and the stigma surrounding mental health is, is, it's gotten better, but it's still really shitty. So I think the reason I was drawn to this particular uh, story uh, or case, if you will, is because I have been kind of, ex- been experiencing a, a bit of a, some suicidal thoughts lately. So maybe this is just therapeutic for me in some weird ass way. And you guys all just have to listen. Welcome aboard. (laughs) Welcome aboard the, uh, the train of Kirsten dealing with life during a pandemic. (laughs) Okay. So yeah, if, if you are not in a place where you can listen to a discussion about suicide, that's okay. Uh, a week ago, I would not have been. So, you know, there's an ebb and a flow to these things. Maybe come back later. Maybe don't come back at all. Totally fine. But I don't want anyone caught off guard. So, yes, we will be discussing suicide today. And again, I say we, but really, it's just me. (laughs) Although, feel free, as always, feel free to reach out. Uh, So... Last week, no, was it last? Whatever, last episode I put out, whenever the fuck that was, uh, got a lot of positive feedback. I, apparently, I'm really better at this when I'm drunk, so we'll be doing another one of those. Uh, today is is not the day for that because drinking is not a thing that can be happening with me right now. Uh, however, um, last time I kind of recommended a couple few podcasts. I want to give you another recommendation today. Uh, This one is called Small Town Murder. And it's, there's a lot of content there, which is great. Um, I guess I just have a thing lately for like things that sound like radio shows. (laughs) But this also sounds like a radio show. But it's, anyway, it's got some really interesting cases that I had never heard of. And for anyone else who kind of 
has an interest in true crime, like you, you sort of get to a point where you're like, I feel like I've heard everything. It just sounds so fucking terrible. But uh, yeah, there are a lot because these do focus on smaller towns. So things that maybe didn't get a lot of attention. So go check that out. And my dog's eating a sock. Oh, no, he's not. Just kidding. It's a toy that looks like a sock. So, um, the, uh, fuck, I was going to tell you something else and now I don't remember what it is. It's fine. It'll come to me maybe later. Maybe that was the only thing. Like, here's my recommendation. Listen to this podcast called Small Town Murder. And fuck all if I can remember what is happening in my life right now. That's okay. Long day at work today, kids. Long day at work. (laughs) Uh, Right up top, let me go ahead and give you um, some resources since we are going to be discussing suicide today. Uh, Please, if you are having suicidal thoughts... If things are overwhelming and you don't feel like you have anybody in your personal circle to reach out to, uh, then, or you don't want to, you know, burden anybody that way. I know I've had that kind of argument with myself before. Please access, like I've told you in the past, the Trevor Project, I really, really like and has worked well for me. There's also the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which you can call at 1-800-273-8255 or go to their website, suicide, suicide? No, suicidepreventionlifeline.org. All right, Uh, resources for my research uh, with our discussion today. Uh, Wikipedia, as always, There was an article in Harper's Bazaar from May, just this last May, in fact, May of 2020, by Chelsea Sanchez, a New York Times article from September 1932, and my great big brain. So those are the things, those are the things that I used to uh, kind of compile all this research. Okay. And you know, I'm going to take a quick second to check and make sure this fucking thing is actually recording. Okay, great. Because last time I recorded a whole episode and for some reason it didn't actually record. Like it recorded and then I went to upload it and it was like, bye bitch. And it was just all fucking gone. And that was the one where I was drinking. And so then I had to drink even more and I was like, how am I alive? But I was alive. All right. So today... What I want to do is tell you about a woman who was a hardworking and talented actress, a woman whose memory has really been associated more with like, take this life lesson and learn from it more than, you know, her actual life. And that bothers me. (laughs) And, uh... Yeah, I just wanted to share a little bit of what I have learned about her with you. And I got to say, I having come through kind of my own, you know, uh, bad depression days all in a row and uh, some pretty strong suicidal feelings, 
uh, I think that's what drew me to her story. So today, her name is Peg Entwistle. But here's the thing. <laughs> her real name, I shouldn't say her real name. Like your real name is whatever you tell me your name is. So if you say, my name's Peg, great. Your name's Peg, that's fine. That's your real name. Whatever pronouns you use, those are your real pronouns. So I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said her real name. But the name she was born with was Millicent Lillian Entwistle. And let me just tell you that Millicent is one of my favorite names. I, did you ever see that show Flushed Away? Um, it's one of those like Wallace and Gromit, fuck, like the clay looking. Anyway, there's some character that says something about <laughs> His name's Millicent. He's a Millicent bystander. Anyway, forget it. Millicent. It's a great name. But uh, Millicent Lillian Entwistle was born on February 5th of 1908, which means, friends, that she was a motherfucking Aquarius. And I only say that because Aquariuses are my goddamn kryptonite. Like, they've got, like, they're... They're all imaginative and idealistic and individualistic and just any any really like super cool person that you meet is a fucking Aquarius. I can almost promise you. And Aquarius men in particular, like I fall fucking hard for those assholes. Like, no, they're not assholes. I it just... Aquariuses. No, I've fallen really hard for Aquarius women too. So it's just Aquariuses. If you're an Aquarius... I love you. Also, <laughs> um, no, not also. <laughs> Millicent was an Aquarius. So that's, that's a thing you need to know. Oh yeah, she was also born in Wales, which is at like top three of places I desperately, desperately want to go visit someday, somehow. So she's born in Wales and some of the sources, this is where things get a little bit sketchy. This was actually kind of tricky to research because there's not a lot that I could find about her in terms of her childhood. Like everything is about her death. So this was very fucking frustrating to me. There was lots, I mean, if you think there's a lot of swearing in this episode, you should have heard the swearing when I was trying to like dig and dig and dig and find things. Uh, some sources have said that her mother died when she was very young. But other sources, and these are the ones that I kind of maybe lean toward a bit more, indicate that her mother suffered from some severe mental illnesses. And so Millicent's parents divorced when Millicent was just a toddler. That's the one that I, I kind of think is is more accurate because there, there were some... Um, like little snippets of divorce paper decree type things that I saw that spoke specifically about custody of uh, Millicent. So it, it, it does look to me like they were divorced um, when Millicent was young. So this, of course, you know, I got to tell you, divorce at any age is is traumatic. Uh, even, even when the children... 
are young, uh, there's still there's still some trauma involved when when a divorce occurs. So that's kind of a big life event, right? Well, almost not not right right after, but not too long after that, uh, Millicent's father decides to move to the United States. So they just up and fucking moved countries. I moved across the country after my divorce, and that was hard. I can't imagine moving wait not moving countries <laughs> like you're picking it up like you're fucking hercules putting it down somewhere else no 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 moving from one country to another that's that's a big fucking deal millicent was probably around eight years old when this happened uh but they they ended up in new york city fucking new york like all the all the cool people go to new york city Maybe that's why I've never been there, <laughs> but I will, I will. I'm going to get there someday. Is that part of the New York, New York song? No, it's not. Is it? No. Anyway, uh, Millicent's father, Robert, um, was apparently a bit of an actor. He was in a, quite a few plays and that is probably where Millicent caught her acting bug. Sadly, in 1922, so Millicent would have been 16-ish, I guess, if my math is right, which is probably not. Uh, Millicent's father was hit by a vehicle and he died of his injuries. So here she is at 16, no no mother, no father, and she ended up living uh, with with relatives. really kind of for the rest of her life. About a year after her father's death, uh, she would have been about 17 at this point, Millicent began an acting career. Now, um, it was apparently at this point, I don't know if Peg was maybe a nickname uh, throughout her childhood, but certainly when she started acting regularly is when she really became known as Peg to everybody else. So from here on out, that is what I'm going to call her. Peg was, uh, as it turned out, a very talented stage actress. She was in several Broadway plays and seemed to be working quite regularly, which is uh really the hope when one goes into acting or any kind of artistic field that you want to get a lot of work and then you want to get really good work but initially it can be hard to break into it so getting steady work is is kind of a big deal there's a i don't know a legend or a myth or some a story that uh betty davis saw her in a production and Uh, was so impressed and moved by her that she told somebody, I want to be exactly like Peg Entwistle. I don't know. I I don't know. It's this is one of the things I think that was so frustrating trying to to research Peg's story because separating fact from fiction and embellishment from truth was really difficult and I am still not sure of some of this so I don't know if that ever happened or not uh it just seems like any time Hollywood's involved things you know get a little more over the top (laughs) but 
I don't know. Maybe let's just say it's true. Let's just you and I are going to decide this is a true thing. And we're going to just go with that. So from here on out, that's a true story. And that was like the longest pause in the world. So I'm sorry. (laughs) Peg went on to uh, tour with the New York Theater Guild, which is dope as fuck. They actually came to her and they said, we want you to be part of us. That sounds creepy, like a cult when I say it like that. But they (laughs) recruited her. Nope, still sounds like a cult. They enticed, nope, not enticed. There's no way that I can say this without it sounding creepy. Whatever. She toured with the New York Theater Guild, (laughs) which again, she was quite young. So to be that young and that successful and that, you know, well-recognized is a super big deal. That's awesome. What is less awesome is that this was the same time she also met and married some fucking dickbag idiot named Robert Keith. So this is in, now we're in 1926. This fucking piece of shit was actually already married and had a kid. Peg knew nothing about this other family. It was just like, he's just like, I'm gonna, you know, and I'm all for open relationships and polyamorous relationships. Like I support that as long as everybody is an adult and I can't believe I just said it like adult. Like as long as everyone's an adult and can consent, meaning that there's no power structure imbalance involved, I'm fucking fine with it. Like that's, that's fine. And as long as everyone's being honest and communicative, all of that. Great. But that was not the case here. Like he fucking had another, and Peg had no fucking idea. Ooh, it makes me mad. So we're going to put Robert Keith in pretty much the same category as Henry fucking Silver from my episode about Tommy Tompkins, because this is just, again, fucking men. And guys, I'm not saying that you're all like this, but in, in these cases, it's the fucking men that are just like, I shall have all whatever I want and fuck anybody else's feelings. And if I have to manipulate and control and gaslight and abuse to get it, then that's what I'm going to do. It's like fucking sociopaths. Ah, makes me nuts. So Peg ends up divorcing him, which I don't even know how that marriage would have been like wholly legal anyway, if he was married to somebody else, but that's not Peg's fault at all. So marriage ends and about this time, you know, she's still working very consistently it just must have been so gut-wrenching to, you know, I mean, it's hard enough, I think, to, to love somebody. That's hard. I mean, it's, I fall in love super easily, maybe, but, but it's hard to, it's hard to love someone. It's hard to put yourself out there. It's hard to make yourself vulnerable. Uh, to the point where you can enter into like a relationship. I, I think that is, it's a brave and difficult thing. And 
even more so to commit to somebody in in a marriage i it it takes a lot as someone who has been married and divorced there's something about that experience that that really even in the best case scenario it it feels like a massive rejection and and a betrayal like here's this relationship where you thought you were going to experience life navigate life with this other person and you sort of it changes the way you look at your future because that person's going to be in it and then to not have them there it's it's more than just not having them there in the present to know that they're not going to be there in the future that you had envisioned for yourself it's a big loss i uh i am very good friends with my ex-husband we have a very good friendship we co-parent pretty well um there i mean there's some disagreements and things but you know human beings we disagree on shit that, that's how it goes and as amicable as my divorce was and i think probably my ex would say this too i did you know, we've had a few conversations about it, but it's not, it's not always like something you want to like, Hey, let's, let's fucking talk about that time. We got divorced. Oh my God. It's like, we're not talking about a weekend in Vegas. Like you don't want to like revisit a lot of that. And I'll be the first person to admit that there are a lot of, uh, feelings about the divorce that I don't think I've fully processed. But I will say that, and and I'm not blaming anyone either, it's just the nature of the beast. In my case, at least, uh, it was a a big loss. It was was the right thing to do, um, just because we, we got married very young and we were definitely kind of becoming a different kind of people than we were when we got married and not in a bad way either Uh, there's many layers involved in this (laughs) i I, this is the thing had we tried to stay buried uh did i say buried or married had we tried to stay together we would not be friends now because it would have been too restrictive to both of us and that sounds i don't know kind of weird but i know what i'm talking about so um So what I'm saying is, in a very rambling fucking way, is that divorce, even in the best of circumstances, when it's an agreed upon, like, yeah, this is probably best for both of us, this is best for our family, and we're still going to be friends and supportive of one another, and and I still consider my ex to be part of my family, just not living with and hitching my wagon to that person necessarily in quite the same way. And, And I think he feels the same about me, so... Again, that's why it's not entirely weird that I still have my ex-husband's last name, because um, we have a good relationship and we are we're still family. Peg's situation, of course, entirely different. So I, what I'm kind of envisioning here, what I'm trying to to imagine, is taking all of that hurt that I felt and feel, um, that type of rejection, and magnifying it by like a thousand, a million, thousand, a thousand million <laughs> to, to know that somebody just blatantly lied to you about their, who they were 
and what they could give you um, in terms of a relationship. Ah, fucking devastating. Just devastating. And yet, this is how baller Peg Entwistle is. She's still, like, working. And acting is an emotional gig, you guys. You, for those of you who are artists, anything in the arts, it's, it can be very raw. So here she is acting and she's tapping into these emotions while dealing with a lot of shit. That's amazing that she had that kind of just bravery and constitution. God, I sound like I'm fucking Jane Austen over here, you know, to be able to to kind of handle all of that. She was also really serious about her craft. I found an article, um, there's an interview that she gave to the Oakland Tribune in 1929. And uh, she was quoted as saying, I would rather play roles that carry conviction. Maybe it's because they are the easiest and yet the hardest for me to do. To play any kind of an emotional scene, I must work up to a certain pitch. If I reach this in my first word, the rest of the words and lines take care of themselves. But if I fail, I have to build up the balance of the speeches. And in doing this, the whole characterization falls flat. I feel that I am cheating myself. I don't know whether other actresses get the same reaction or not, but it does worry me. And that's the end of the quote. Guys. I <laughs> oh, it was like a maniacal weird sound I just made. I feel this so much. I have done a bit of acting, uh, but it reminded me so much of, so I'm a dancer. I almost said by trade. No, not, not really. It's, it's a hobby. <laughs> I perform, well, at least before the virus, I performed fairly regularly, but uh I choreograph a lot of my own stuff and like I totally get what she's saying like you know when you're like in it and you're like you're getting it and the choreography almost seems to take care of itself because you've you've hit that moment just right with like the right kind of music and the right idea for an act and all of this and it just goes but man there are other times where it's not that easy and you really struggle and you you think okay well maybe this isn't falling into place the way it should because I'm not doing it right or it's the wrong song or whatever. Uh, as a writer, I do this too. I mean, you get to, you know, this this sort of groove and it's like, okay, they're, the characters are kind of writing themselves or struggle, 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 you know, clearly something's not working. Let me regroup and see if I can do it any differently. So even though that quote's really short, I think it just says so much about her just, you know, as as an artist and, you know, such insight into who she was and that she did take it seriously and she was driven by her heart. heart. Ah, Well, yes, that too, but driven by her art and that it was important to her. So as she's touring with this theater guild, they end up in Hollywood and she saw a chance to really push herself as an actress and try her hand at film. So film acting and stage acting are very different beasts. I've done both. Uh, depending on the day, I like one better than the other, but uh, it's, it, is, it, is, it is different. It's just a different medium. So there are different skill sets that are required and different 
shit sources that you have to deal with. But uh, this is not uncommon for that period of time where stage actors would, I mean, Hollywood's booming, right? So even though like the Great Depression is happening right now, not right now, right now, in, in the like late 20s, early 30s, but also maybe a little bit right now. It, things are crazy. The economy is bonkers. And that's a story for another time. Nobody panic. We're going to be okay. We're going to get through this. Well, uh, people were really drawn to Hollywood. And it was this, you know, kind of maybe this, God, like it's brutal now to get into the industry. But back then it was, oh, there was some just horrible shit going on. And it was super cutthroat just brutal, brutal, brutal. So I think that kind of the depression created a desperation, I guess, that really drove people to to go out to Hollywood and try and and make their lives better. So there's this huge influx. It's like overly saturated with people trying to make it in the business. And the thing of it is, and, and this is true now too, like you can be super talented and really good at what you do and you can have the right look or whatever, uh, but if you don't have the right luck or the right in, if you don't know the right people, you're just not going to make it. And this is exactly how it was then, only again, like times a gazillion. And sadly, luck was just never, it was never in Peg's corner. She struggled really fucking hard. So she went from, you know, having this pretty decent career on stage. But again, like as, as we heard kind of from her other quote, you know, she took her acting seriously. And there's a point where you just say, okay, I've done this and I am proud of what I've done, but I want to try something else. I need to push myself more because that's the other thing with art. You've got to continually push yourself. You, you can't just stay where you're at. And I think it's like that with a lot of things. But like I think about my day job and it's like, OK, well, if I could get that like just sort of, you know, running like a well-oiled machine and, you know, don't have to think too much about it and put too much into it, then great. Like I want to do a good job because that's the kind of person I am. But I'm not passionate about my day job, like not really at all. I it, it's just not, you know, it's not what I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> so... When you have something, though, that does drive you, that is part of your soul and, and such a part of your passion for life, you do push that envelope and you do stretch yourself. And it really, it is, it's who you are. And so the response to that art uh, is kind of, we, we internalize that. And, and we've seen that all throughout history. And you see that with all kinds of artists. I mean, this is, you know, there's there's that school of thought like, well, if you want to make it, you got to have a thick skin and but fuck, that's so counterintuitive. I don't think that I could be as good of an artist as I am if I had a thick skin. So how do you how do you find that balance between, okay, I know I'm going to get shit on because that's the nature of the beast and I don't want to lose who I am 
and build up these like walls, these psychological walls so that nobody can get close to me and I don't feel anything because I'm an artist, so I need to feel things and you see the problem. So it's this, it's always this balancing act. Well, no different for Peg. In, in 1932, after lots and lots of struggles, she finally lands a role, it's a fairly small one, but it's still a role in a film called 13 Women which from what I've read is just a horribly shitty movie and it's got like some weird like uh, like some dudes trying to control these women and there's some like lesbian themes in it so then of course the Hayes office which is what they had at the time instead of like the rating system is like you know, you can't show this and that's too whatever. And we're just a bunch of guys sitting around deciding what we feel is appropriate. So they ended up cutting quite a lot of the film. And unfortunately, uh, almost all of Peg's screen time uh, ends up on the cutting room floor. So that's is fucking humiliating. Knowing what we know about Peg in terms of how seriously she took her acting, I have no doubt that she put everything into this role, especially since it was like kind of her first big film role. And to have someone literally cut you out of the story, because that's how they used to do, it was like actual film and they that's why it's called the cutting room floor. That must have felt like being cut out of life. That must have felt like someone just saying, you're fucking not good enough. We don't even want to see you. Snip, snip, you're gone. To make matters worse, uh, the movie studio that Peg had been working for, RKO, uh, decided not to renew her contract. So she was unemployed in the middle of the Great Depression. I want that to sink in a little bit. For those of us who are struggling with the uh, virus right now and the economy right now, being unemployed right now is fucking terrifying. And as much as I hate my job, I am very lucky to have it. And I know a lot of other people who aren't so lucky and it's it's scary so this this feeling of stress and anxiety peg would have had no way to release that she would have had nobody to talk to again mental health resources in the 1930s nope i mean at best you're maybe going to a sanatorium where they do like electroshock therapy bullshit on you or just you're a hysterical woman so just have some smelling salts or whatever the fuck they did. Peg experienced so much loss and and I I can only then I'm just I'm you know this is what I think about it. Like there's nothing that leads me to believe that uh, I'm exactly right in the way I view this whole situation and how I view Peg, but I'm going to pontificate upon it anyway. <laughs> losing her parents um, 
living kind of in maybe feeling like she didn't belong uh having the man that she loved turn out to be a total fucking bitch jackass motherfucking douche is a rejection that hurts and so you you look how do i value myself what do i want to you know use as the measuring stick for my value for peg it would have been acting so to have her part cut you know if you read about her in some of these papers and articles it seems so like an over-the-top reaction oh this happened because she her part got cut oh wow wow poor girl but that's not what it was this was a lifetime of experiencing loss and hurt and pain and this was like the last straw this probably more than anything else felt like a judgment on her value and that's not what it was but if that's how it feels to you then that is the reality what the papers tell us happened next is this peg had been living with her uncle and she left his home on the evening of september 16th 1932 telling him that she was going to meet friends instead she made her way to the iconic hollywoodland sign back in those days it read hollywoodland not just hollywood she used a ladder to climb the 46 foot high letter h and threw herself from it two days later a hiker found peg's broken body police would find a suicide note in her discarded purse near her body and the suicide note said i am afraid i am a coward and i'm sorry for so many things if i'd only done this long ago i could have saved a lot of pain i'm getting emotional <laughs> peg's death by suicide has been told as kind of um this like cautionary tale you know don't let hollywood chew you up and spit you out learn to take criticism develop that thick skin but i really think that all of that is bullshit <clears throat> sorry fuck sorry <clears throat> i i think that that really minimizes and invalidates the pain the real the very real pain that peg was in so i'm going to put on my psychology cap here and tell you what i know um about the brain about my own struggles with mental health and then i'm going to play a little bit of armchair psychologist which i've really been doing the whole time <laughs> peg did not die because her part was cut from a movie nobody ends their life for shit like that they do it because they feel no hope peg's life was one loss after another again and again and again and again life beat her down we base our ideas of hope and the future on our past 
what reason did Peg have to think that her life would suddenly be any different? When all she'd experienced, and not all she'd experienced, but such significant loss and rejection and hurt. When the brain experiences trauma like that, it, it stores it, right? This is how we get post-traumatic stress syndrome. And I don't know if I've gone off on a soapbox yet about how I refuse to call it post-traumatic stress disorder, but fuck that. I do not, I do not like the term PTSD. I don't like calling it a disorder because it, it, it doesn't fit my definition of a disorder. The brain is doing exactly what it was designed to do. It just is fucking us up. <laughs> so, you know, even when things work right, sometimes they still have catastrophic results. Like if I'm driving my car, it's working right. But if a cat runs in front of it at the last minute, catastrophic results. The car was doing what the car was supposed to do. The consequence, though, is horrible. That did happen to me once. Actually, it happened with a raccoon, too. This fucking raccoon. I saw it kind of at the last minute, and so I swerved. I had the space to swerve so I wouldn't hit it. That fucker turned around and ran into my swerve, so I still ended up hitting him. I don't know. It was crazy. But post-traumatic stress is, is this. Our brains are not linear. They, uh... They hang on to this trauma, and I guess the idea, well, the idea, <laughs> brain, idea, the idea behind it is that it will keep us from experiencing further danger, but when it stores it in that part of the brain, the amygdala, which governs memory and emotion, uh, it makes you relive it as though it is actually happening. So your brain does not differentiate between oh, that happened a while ago. I'm not actually in imminent, you know, trauma, danger, stress. That was in the past. No, 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 no. Your brain does not do that. It lives it as though it's happening now. So getting out of that post-traumatic stress loop is incredibly difficult because our brains are wired to live in it. It's so hard. This creates... Again, when we talked about um, stress and the brain's response to stress, it just floods it with all of this, you know, adrenaline and anxiety and, you know, make yourself safe, but you feel like you don't have a safe space. So then trauma can get piled on top of, on top, on top of trauma. So when you have multiple traumas and then you experience something else, not only are you experiencing the present trauma, your brain is going to relive your past trauma as though it's happening now. So when I say it was the straw that broke the camel's back or the last straw or whatever the fuck I said earlier that I can't remember, what I want you to understand is that she would have been experiencing all the shit that she'd experienced in the past with this, you know, by the way, your scene got, all your scenes were cut and you're fired, essentially. And it's, you know, 
huge economic depression. Uh, you've got nobody. <laughs> and also, remember all this other shit that happened to you? It, it's going to feel like it's happening now. That is overwhelming. And without support systems, it's just virtually impossible to get out of that. So she would have had a lot of time, you know, climbing up the, the ladder. That was a big climb. I don't know how long she was at the top of that H staring out into the night sky. I have no idea. But I do know that all of that time, I think, worked against her. I think that it just pulled all of those past traumas into the present. And it was just more than she could handle on her own. Because you guys, I most of us are going to have that. Most of us are going to experience shit that is too much to handle by ourselves. And when you don't have the support system or somebody to reach out to, then that is when hope evaporates. Because we need someone outside our own brains to say, dude, I know this fucking sucks and you deserved better and you still deserve better. And if you can just hang on with me for just one more day, we'll figure something out. Because our own brains aren't going to let us do that. I hate knowing that Peg felt like she didn't have that. I don't judge her for the choice that she made. But I do judge the people that are treating it just like a bit of Hollywood history. Or, like I said, this cautionary tale. Or whatever. Uh, that really does a disservice to what she was experiencing. And I think that it does a disservice to those of us who have experienced loss and trauma. And I don't give a shit what your trauma is in terms of like, oh, well, there are other people who've... I mean, I do give a shit what your trauma is. But one thing that I hate is what I call a misery match, where it's like, okay, I'm a sexual assault survivor, but I'm not a murder victim, so clearly someone else has had it worse than me. Don't do that. Don't compare. You cannot compare. Whatever hurts you is valid. That is a hurt and it is real. It doesn't matter if you think it's stupid. It doesn't matter if anybody else thinks it's stupid. That breakup that you just went through, that just devastated you, that caused that exquisite, like almost physical pain because you loved that person so much, that's fucking valid. Don't let anybody tell you that it's not. At the same time, I am here telling you, there is hope and I promise that you matter. I promise that you do. And I know that that means fuck all when you don't feel like you matter. If you are feeling overwhelmed, if you are looking up 
at your own Hollywood land sign and you are ready to step on that ladder and walk up, I'm gonna beg you to please just wait. Just wait. Reach out to somebody else. Your brain is lying to you. Those stupid fuckers, those brains, you guys. They are marvelous and fucking awful at the same time. Your brain is lying to you. It doesn't mean to, I guess. It's just doing what it was designed to do or programmed to do or however the fuck you want to phrase it. I promise that there's hope. And I know, I know how hard it is. I know that that it, it's something you can't see when you're experiencing that suicidal situation. And I know it hurts. And I know it takes all your energy to try and battle it. I know it does because I've been there. And I've been there very recently. My most recent, I call it, so I, suicidal ideation I think is something that kind of just stays with you. Um, I don't think that it ever really, really goes away. Like any addiction, it's, uh, it's something that you kind of have to be aware of and, and you have to know the signs for when you're relapsing and relapse is a part of recovery. That's just how the recovery cycle and addiction cycle that works. It's, it, it's not a one and done type of thing. Um, and I wish people understood that. I wish people understood that suicidal ideation is not for attention and it's not to be annoying. Um, God, this is like the, I have got snot dripping down my face. I'm crying so hard. Um, we don't talk about it enough. <laughs> it's very alienating. Uh, and it is the loneliest thing. And we're sort of taught to feel shame for having these ideas, but there's a reason we have them. It's society that should feel the shame. So, as hard as this is for me to talk about, um, I just, I kind of felt strongly that I needed to. If you are feeling this, I, I know that I can't tell you that I know how you feel because what you're experiencing is going to be different based on your past and your traumas than mine, but I can also tell you you're not alone. And I know it's hard. My last suicidal ideation relapse, as I called it, or it's a... <clears throat> 
like I don't know I, I say I have like oh I've had this bad depression day or I've had this like suicidal relapse and I know that's maybe a weird way to phrase it but um just that the energy that I was exerting to not harm myself was so intense that I was physically shaking uncontrollably This does not mean that I'm unstable, and it does not mean that I'm... <laughs> I mean, I have depression, I have anxiety, I have suicidal ideation. Fucking deal with it, you know? I promise you it's a lot harder for me than it is for the person who's judging me for it. Like, go fuck you. And sometimes it's hard to know who to reach out to. Um, there have been times I've tried to reach out to a friend that I thought would understand and I didn't get what I needed from them. And and that's okay too, because here's the other thing. If, if someone reaches out to you and you don't have the emotional reserves to help them through it, because it's going to be hard to help them through it, please just be honest about that and guide them to someone who is able to help them but don't just ignore them don't just ghost them if someone has texted you and said i can't do this anymore don't just leave it on red at least dig deep enough to say i want so much to help you but i'm in a bad place too Give them a number of someone that they can call. The resources that I gave you at the beginning of the episode. If you don't feel like you have someone that you can reach out to for whatever reason, please reach out to one of those resources. You can chat. You don't have to talk on the phone. Because listen to me right now. Like, you think this would be a good conversation? No, fuck that. I'm not calling anybody. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to utilize the chat feature. <laughs> Nobody needs to hear this <laughs> as I'm letting you hear it <laughs> I I just fuck one death by suicide is one too many and I guess that's the whole point of this particular episode you know um, it's real we're not weak we're not damaged. We're not worthless. We're not. Peg was not. And I wish that she'd had somebody that she could talk to. But she's more than just a story. She was an actual human being who had a light inside her who died way too soon and you are the same I want to if I can pull my shit together enough I want to end I feel like I sound like Kermit the Frog <laughs> um, which is not bad he's fine <clears throat> god <laughs> I can't oh, I don't even know what kind of feedback I'm gonna get for this fucking episode I don't care we need solidarity. We need to fucking talk about this. Because maybe if we do, people will feel more 
safe. They'll feel safer in reaching out when they need to. Because we can't do it alone. You can't do this alone. And you don't have to. And that's, that's my point. <laughs> All right. Okay. I'm going to try to pull it together with a quote. <laughs> I should have brought tissues to my table that I'm recording on because this is like snot fest. <laughs> okay. Uh, this quote, it was a letter written by Martha Graham, who was like pioneer of modern dance to Agnes DeMille, who is also a very famous, amazing dancer. I'm going to take just a sip of water to try and get the frog out of my throat. And I quote, There is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. If you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable it is, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours, clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. You do not even have to believe in yourself or your work. You have to keep open and aware directly of the urges that motivate you. Keep the channel open. Guys. And I hope you know that when I say you guys or guys, like that's like my Utah accent kind of coming out, but that is a very gender neutral term. So it's my dudes. Again, uh, we are in some trying times. So please reach out. Please reach out to someone. And if you want to talk about any of this at all, uh, there is a Facebook page and you can email me at hernamepodcast at gmail.com. Look, I want to help. I want to be here for you and I want to have like a good community and strengthen and uplift each other. And that sounded super churchy, so I almost take it back. But look, let's just like love the shit out of each other, right? Right.